0: Hey friends, is social media a positive or a negative thing? You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 289, Chris Martin, and how social media shapes us. (laughs) Hey friends, welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. As always, I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thanks for being here. So glad that you have downloaded this episode, and I know that it's going to be helpful to you because I guarantee we're going to cover some things that uh, that you're thinking about already just in the context of our guest story. So, uh, let's introduce him. Our guest is, he's an editor at Moody Publishers and a social media marketing and communications consultant. Uh, he's got a new book out called terms of service. Our guest is Chris Martin. Chris, welcome to halfway there.
1: Hey, thanks for having me here. Good to be here.
0: I am happy to have you. We've connected through some mutual friends, which I'm excited about. Um, tell me, you know, that's it's one thing to say you kind of these things that you do, but tell me a little bit more about who you are and where God has you right now.
1: Hmm. So, um, yeah. So where we are right now, maybe we start with the present. We can decide how far back into the past we want to go. Um, I, yeah, my wife and I, her name's Susie. Uh, we have a daughter named Maggie magnolia is her full name and a dog named rizzo not named after a muppet or a Grease character but (laughs) named after the former first baseman of the chicago cubs oh no and uh i should have asked if
0: you were a cubs fan before we i guess you're you're moody so that's all right are
1: are you a cardinals fan i'm
0: totally a cardinals fan and i like you can't see all my plethora of cardinals hats up here but
1: yeah yeah well on (laughs) video you can see behind me plenty of cubs paraphernalia some of which you can't even see but uh yeah so that's uh, well you know we'll put that aside and we are brothers <laughs> in christ first so more important yes um, more important i have plenty of i have plenty of cardinals fans friends who uh, who have redeemed who have redeemed cardinals fans for me so um so yeah like I, I i i am a cubs fan obviously so we live out just outside nashville tennessee um my wife and i are both originally from fort wayne indiana which is in the northeast part of indiana just about 2 hours north of indianapolis Right kind of up in the corner, right next to Ohio and Michigan. I went to Taylor University for college for my undergrad. I got an undergrad in biblical literature and then eventually got my MDiv at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is out of Wake Forest, North Carolina. Um, We currently live, like I said, just outside Nashville because when we graduated from college... Uh, my first job out of college was actually running the blogs and social media of three of Lifeway's six vice presidents. So, growing up in the in the north, I guess you could say, living down here in Nashville, uh, growing up in the north, uh, I'd never really heard of like Lifeway before. I didn't know what Lifeway was. <laughs> uh, we had family Christian bookstores, but like, I mean, you go, looking back, I, I like helped lead like. Um, Uh, VBSs that were Lifeway and stuff, but I wasn't, you know, I was in college. I was not paying attention to who the brand was of the VBS we were running or whatever. And so we were, I was applying for this job at Lifeway because there was a guy named Ed Stetzer who I'd followed. I'd read his blog all through. Yeah. I'd, I'd read his blog all through college and he tweeted out he needed a social media guy. And I'm like, well, I like this guy's writing and I know how to do social media stuff. I didn't have a marketing degree, but I mean, for social media, having a marketing degree, a marketing degree from 2009 to 2013 wasn't going to teach a whole lot about social media anyway. So, um, but I had done a ton of social media work um, professionally while being a college student, and uh, that's a part of the story we may get to. But eventually, all that's to say, I applied for this job in Nashville at an organization I'd never heard of, but I'd heard of the guy who I was going to work for, and so uh, I got the job. And so we moved to Nashville, and I. Spent about three years running Ed Stetzer's blog at Christianity Today and running his social media, as well as a couple other LifeWay vice presidents um, who had much smaller platforms, but who we were trying to grow and influence. And so I did that for my first job. That's what brought us to Nashville to begin with. And though I left LifeWay in September of 2020 um, to take a, a role at Moody doing uh, editing and, and so, some more, more offline, I'm, I, stand, I am doing a good bit of online work, but being a little bit outside of the rigmarole of the social media space, I wanted to do a little bit more offline work. And so um, so anyway, left Lifeway in September 2020. Moody has not required me to move to Chicago. I, I love Chicago, and Chicago is actually my favorite city on the planet. I love Chicago. Um, and and perhaps we may end up there someday. But right now we have a great community here outside Nashville. We love our church, we love our friends, have no desire to go anywhere or pay exorbitant taxes. So we are, we are happily uh, chilling outside Nashville Metro and enjoying ourselves. So that's a little bit about where I'm at. I mean, I could go into a lot more detail, but that's sure. kind of where I'm at.
0: Well, we'll go back and go kind of through the kind of things that I'm interested in, but yeah, really interesting. So I, I didn't share this with you, but I went to Trinity. So Chicago, like I was there for seven years. I love Chicago too. It's a great city. It's a great uh, yep. Midwestern kind of city. So um, all that, all to say to say that we have that kind of connection. So, uh, all right. So you grew up in Indiana. So was that, was it a Christian family? I mean, you ended up going to Taylor, so I'm guessing it was, but was that, what was that like for you growing up?
1: Yeah. Yeah. My parents are both believers and I, I think they grew up in homes that were maybe nominally Christian, um, but not, not like your typical church going families, Um, growing up. And so I would say in some ways they were kind of first generation Christian parents, Mm. you know, in, in us, like my dad grew up with a a mom who I think was Methodist and a dad who was Catholic and, and faith was maybe a part of their home culturally, but they weren't like going to church every Sunday. And even with my, with my mom, I'm not sure what her sort of legacy of faith is um, and how, like how her family really Mm. handled faith, but they moved around a lot. So I know they weren't like rooted in a church family for a long period of time. Um, and so so when they got married and, and started, I would say, you know, taking faith seriously, especially as for their children, um, they, they raised my brother. I have one younger brother. He's three years younger than me. They raised us in the church. And I, um, faith has always been a part of my life. I mean, like, I can remember going to VBSs and Sunday school when I was very small. No. Um, and, and I would say the, like, um, when people ask me, you know, what's your testimony? When did you come to faith? my answer is a little bit fraught, which I think a lot of Christians understand, and especially young, maybe younger Christians who grew up in the church. Um, I grew up in, in a a couple of solid churches. And, um, when I remember being in the third grade in elementary school and, um, remembering our pastor, it was very much like a willow model, like, like kind of non-denominational and, and Broadly evangelical and and sort of seeker sensitive, but not not in the sort of Rob Bell seeker sensitive sort of way. And um and so there was always like a, a sort of altar call at the end of every service. But I remember our pastor talking about um accepting Christ, and he would talk about it every week. And 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 it always sounded like, hey, this is a, this sounds like something I should do. Like it sounds important. Um, but I felt like. I'm I'm a very like type A type of person. If anyone's an enneagram person, I'm a 1. Okay. I'm the D. I'm the I'm the D. I'm the lion. I'm the I'm all of that, right? Like I'm you know you know what I'm talking I about if you know it. what I'm talking about. So I like I was like I need a set like list from step 1 through step 5 of how to accept Christ into my heart. Like as a third grader, I'm thinking this way because I'm like I this is very important. I don't want to mess it up, right? Like I <laughs> I understood the gravity of what was going on. I was like, I want to make sure if I'm supposed to be praying something that I don't like misstep here and say something I'm not supposed to say and void this transaction. That's kind of how I was thinking of it when I was in third grade. Thankfully, I had we had a Sunday school teacher. His name was Mr. Dave. And frankly, I don't know if Mr. Dave is still alive, if I'm going to be honest, because when Mr. Dave was teaching us in when I was in third grade, he was right. old. However, I knew he was still teaching Sunday school as late as when I was in college. Now that was 10 years ago. But, but yeah, so anyway, Mr. Dave was a wonderful, like your typical faithful old man in the church teaching third graders about Jesus. And I remember one day in Sunday school, and when I was in third grade, he taught us what it meant to actually accept Christ. And it was very much like just like sinner's prayer kind of stuff. And so I remember praying the sinner's prayer on a Sunday in my third grade Sunday school class and being like, okay, I think Mr. Dave led me in the right way of doing this. And I saw myself as saved at that point. I was involved in church throughout growing up through middle school. It wasn't really until high school, like mm, junior year, I think when our youth pastor was doing a series on like fear and anxiety. And I was wrestling with some relational stuff at this, at the time, there was a girl that I'd been really good friends with. And we were like thinking about dating and then decided not to, and our friendship was on the rocks. And, and I was really dealing with, the fact that I had made an idol of this friend of mine, this girl, and the Lord kind of took this drug out from under me and took away our entire, like, you know, there were communication missteps that took away our entire relationship. And I was like, who am I if this person isn't in my life? And, and the series that our youth pastor is preaching at that time about fear and anxiety and ultimately like idolatry really, I think is that's when the Lord saved me. You know, if, if we get, if we get to see on a sort of, spreadsheet of like when our name was written in the lamb's book of life or something like that i really think that like that time will be the time written rather than my third grade time because that's when i really like got it and that's when my faith started to change me that's when i would say i I maybe started to see some actual fruit Mm, because i had always been a i'd always been a good kid frankly because it's easier to be a good kid than be a bad kid and i was just looking (laughs) to make things easy um and so So I would always keep my nose clean at school and not get in any trouble of any kind, just because I didn't want my parents to be mad and want to get things taken away from me. But as a kid, like it was never like an obedience motivated by my love for Jesus or being saved or, or something like that. But after that time, like junior, senior year of high school my affection started to have a more Godward orientation, I guess is how I'd put it. Like, like I was like, how is this going to affect how I go to college? How is this going to affect what kind of career I choose? How is this going to affect, you know, all kinds of things about my life? It it really, that's when faith started to seep into all different parts of my life. And so that's why I really point to that period of when I think I came to faith and and it colored, obviously changed my life moving forward.
0: Which is really interesting. I'll tell you what I hear. Cause I think it's the experience that you described is pretty common, especially among kids. Who go to church, you're you're, you know, you're it's exemplified for you. You're taught to to either pray this prayer or kind of have faith in some way and without knowing what it means. And I and I really think that's part of the journey, right? It's part part of the journey is to not know what it means and to continually make progressive steps of commitment as you're going. So I I mean I I don't know what, you know, when you were saved, quote unquote, but I would say you were on a journey of a relationship with God the whole time. So, yeah.
1: And, and I should say too, let me say this because a lot of people poo-poo sinners' prayer stuff and say it does more harm than good, or, you know, it's not a transaction, which I I, I agree. I get all of that, but, but I think what Mr. Dave did when I was in third grade was incredibly important for what came Mm -hmm. later when I was a junior in high school. So I think like, you know, I may go back now that I have two Bible degrees at at an undergraduate level and a graduate level, and be like, "Hmm, I don't know if I teach third graders about a sinner's prayer and make it seem like it's this transaction that I pray and God gives me salvation." But like, putting all of that aside, I think what Mister Dave did for us in third grade Sunday school laid a sort of foundation that the Lord really built. Yeah, uh, you know, built on it when when junior year came around.
0: Dude, I will tell you that I think. Well, I, when I started the show five and a half years ago, I had a lot of cynicism about certain things that Christians do. Sinner's Prayer was one of them, Camp was probably another one. Sure, crew, right? Some of the campus ministry yep. stuff like that. But here's the thing over the course of the last five and a half years, so many times I have heard um, stories of how God has used that. You know, I mean, I could tell you all lots of them. Um, or how God has used things that I'm like, "Eh, I don't, you know, I I don't know, man. Uh, But God uses them to start that journey for people. And I can't argue with that. So I've learned to be a lot less, uh, or let me say a lot more circumspect about uh, my criticism if I have it. So, um, yeah, I totally, totally buy that. And you know what? The other thing is people like Mr. Dave uh, are just ordinary Christians who, uh, which I don't say that in a diminutive way, sure. uh, ordinary Christians who are just trying to be faithful, right. To sharing the message that they've received. And that's, that's certainly appropriate. And okay. So friends, if that's you, don't stop, just keep, keep doing it. That's really highly important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We we need you. Um, okay. So all that. So then this starts to suddenly your faith starts to influence your entire life and you're starting to to see that. And it's leading you to like, think about your college decisions and where am I going to go? What, what did that do? So tell what's you decided to go to Taylor? Why, why did you decide? To
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So here we are, uh, junior year, senior year. We get to senior year. Um, man, senior year. We could have a whole podcast about senior year, but I'll try <laughs> to keep it. I try to okay. keep it succinct. So, uh, I, I turned turn eighteen in October of my senior year, and and I don't know if this is still the case today. Um, but like I remember feeling a pressure to decide where I was going to co- go to college by like Christmas of my senior year. So like the fall i had done some campus visits when I was a junior some in the very early fall of senior year and my dad uh, a significant part of my story as it, as it pertains to like the book and and my interest in technology and social media. Roots in my dad working for IBM my entire young life. So my dad started working for IBM when he graduated from Purdue University in the in the late uh, early 1980s, back when computers took up whole rooms, he did computer science at Purdue, and he went to work for IBM. And from the time I was about two years old or three, he was working from our home. In like 1993, working for IBM, it was so remarkable at the time that like a local newspaper in Fort Wayne came and did like a story like local man works from home. He's one of a million Americans who have a home office set up in their home or whatever, which is just like so funny to think about right now. Um, Which, but yeah, but yeah, we're all
0: like that. We're all like, yeah, right. You, uh, right. And like this, like,
1: it's so funny. Cause like, this was always the dream for me. Like it feels natural because I grew up with my dad working in a third bedroom upstairs in our house, you know, like it was just, um, it, he could always be there to coach baseball. He would mow the grass over his lunch break. Like it was just wow. I don't know. So it was fun to watch him grow up, like watched him do that while I was growing up. But he he worked at IBM. So like we had a computer in our home far earlier than a lot of my friends did. I was messing around on the Internet when I was in like first grade, which most of my friends obviously were not. I mean, this was like 95, 96. And so uh, so anyway, that's a big part of my story. But anyway, senior year of high school, I'm like, I think I want to do I think I want to go to Purdue for computer science like dad did. And my grandmother still lived in Lafayette, Indiana, where, where Purdue is. And we had had like season tickets for football. And it was just kind of like a foregone conclusion that I was going to go there. No pressure from anyone else. I just kind of assumed it. And I had an interest in technology. In fact, like I had a tech column in our high school newspaper that I wrote like about I remember when like the iPhone was announced my junior year, like I wrote up a column on the iPhone and like whether or not it would succeed. Um, and, and so like, I was always interested in that stuff. So going into senior year, like you know, August senior year, I'm like, I think I'm gonna go to Purdue, do computer science. Yahoo, Google, these companies from Silicon Valley recruit at Purdue every year. And so I'll just like get a computer science degree, get recruited out to Silicon Valley and go make bank working in tech. And that was my plan. Um, and this would have been, you know, like when Facebook was launching, as I like have this idea. And so that was the plan. And then throughout fall. Um, again, through the work of my youth pastor and being a part of the youth group and the sermons there, the small groups, I realized that I was wanting to pursue that dream for very selfish reasons. Um, And through my own, like the Lord working in my heart, being a relatively new believer at that time. And I was like, I think I just want to be rich and comfortable I don't know if I really want to do this. Like I find this stuff interesting, but I'm terrible at math and a computer science degree requires a good bit of math. Um, And I think I just want to do this for the money. Like my mentality was I'll go out to Silicon Valley make bank and I'll like go to church and I'll be a Christian, but I'm not like, you know, I'm probably not going to like teach Sunday school or, you know, that kind of stuff. And so there's nothing wrong with anything I just described other than my own mentality. Yeah. Um, and and my, it was a very selfish mentality. So around that time, and at the same time, I toured Purdue, like as a prospective student, already having been there like a dozen times, but it was very real now. And I was like, I don't know if I want to go to a school that's a small city, that's like 50,000 people. Like, I don't know if I want to have to take the city bus to class. I feel like I might want something a little bit smaller. And I went to a 2200 person high school. So it's not like I was a, Christian school kid who was afraid of a large environment or something. Um, and so someone was like, hey, why don't you check out a small Christian college just to see a contrast? And so both Indiana Wesleyan University and Taylor University are about an hour from where I grew up. Like They're in the same county there in Grant County, Indiana, an hour south of Fort Wayne. And I had like one friend going to Indiana Wesleyan and a couple friends who were going to Taylor. They had already decided and this would have been in the fall of senior year. And so, but one of the friends going to Taylor was this girl I really liked, the one from junior year. And so I was like, oh, I was like, oh, well, I'll look at Taylor. Cause like, I don't really care. I'm probably not going to go to either one of these schools, but I'll look at it just to see. So I go to Taylor, I'm touring Taylor. And at this point, I'm not really sure what I want to do. I'm thinking maybe like English education. Cause it, when I was convicted of just like wanting money and being rich and comfortable, people said, well, what do you like? What do you like? And I'm like, well, I like teaching. I like writing. Like I, I was doing a lot of tutoring at the time and doing some teaching in a youth group. I really like writing. I was running a blog with a bunch of other Christians, like a like a Christian collective of high schoolers running a blog when we were in high school in 07, 08, 09. And uh, I said, I love reading and writing. Uh, I already said writing. So I was like, maybe I'm supposed to teach high school English. Like I had a couple really influential high school English teachers. I also really liked football and like was like, maybe I'll coach football and teach high school English. So that was my mind when I was going to Taylor to do my college visit. And we were on, I I could tell you the name of the tour guide that was leading the tour. And we were just walking around Taylor doing our little tour. And the tour guide said, you know, professors here, they'll actually like have students over to their homes and like mentor them and like have dinner with them and go to coffee. I'm like, are you serious? Like, I mean, (laughs) I can go, I can like hang out with a professor who will like be a mentor for me. And they're like, yeah, like professors do it all the time. I'm like, sign me up. I'm done. Like, this is it. This is, this sounds amazing. And so me chasing this girl is what got me to look at Taylor rather than Indiana Wesleyan. But the appeal of being like mentored and discipled by mm-hmm. these super smart people, uh, which I just have always looked up to teachers. Like, I, I, even as an elementary schooler, like I always had a good relationship with teachers. I wasn't like a teacher's pet per se. At least I don't, I wasn't Yeah, got to ask you classmates like, about that. I wasn't trying to like. I wasn't trying to like curry favor. Um, I just like. I think I was a little mature for my age as a kid, and so I would just have conversations with teachers and like. I don't know. All of that's to say, uh, I was like, "Man, this sounds really cool, really appealing." So, um, my dad was like, "All right, but Taylor's like fifty grand a year, and Purdue's like half that. So we're gonna have to get some scholarship swinging." Here comes January. If anybody remembers what happened in December, January of. December, 2008, January, 2009, that would be the great recession. And my dad lost his job of 27 years at IBM. He had never worked at another place. He worked for one of the most lucrative, successful computer companies in the world. And he lost his job. Uh, He was in data security and I think they just decided to cut back on whatever program he was part of. And so my dad had a really rough time, as you can imagine. I mean, that was his identity. That's that's the only place he'd ever worked and, and known. Um, for me, I mean, it literally happened like a month after I committed to Taylor. So here you have 18 year old Chris who just committed to a $50,000 a year educational institution to go be a high school English teacher. And I just gave up in my mind being rich in Silicon Valley. Right. And my dad just lost this job. And I'm like, I can't go to Taylor. Like how selfish of that of me is that to like, go to this super, uh, like expensive institution. And my dad just lost his job. So all that's to say, my dad got a new job. It was okay. Wasn't as great as his old one, but like we were able to make things work. And then uh, I got a half tuition scholarship to Taylor for that high school blog that I was writing, which is a whole other story. But we were able to basically get the price of Taylor down to what it would cost to go to Purdue, which was like a miracle, literally like, um, and all of that is goes to say, I, I went to Taylor, ended up at Taylor was an English education major for my first year, basically. And around the end of my freshman year was like, man, I really like, I just started reading like Christian living books for the first time. Like I, i had never really read, you know, the kind of books that I help publish now. Um, And I was reading Francis Chan. I was reading John Piper. I was reading all these people that were just being recommended to me by friends at school or whatever. And I was like, I really like reading theology more than I like reading 19th century British poetry. And if I'm supposed to teach this British poetry and these classic novels for the rest of my life, we might be in trouble. So I started talking to some friends and some friends literally confronted me, a group of three or four friends, one of whom is that girl that I chased to that school, uh, kind of confronted me and said, we think the Lord's calling you to ministry and you're just afraid. And I was like, dang, I think you guys are right. Like, I really feel like the Lord might be calling me to ministry. Those gifts of reading and writing and teaching.
0: Now, wait, wait, how,
1: orient- how long
0: had you been thinking
1: that? about maybe calling me to ministry. Yeah.
0: Was it in the back of your mind for a while?
1: Yeah. Honestly, it was probably in the back of my mind from like senior year, like because our youth, our youth pastor had chosen some of us who were seniors, my senior year to kind of be like leaders among the students, if you will. Um, this happens in larger youth groups, especially where like I would help lead some small groups at times. and, And though I was still a student, I was sometimes treated like a volunteer leader. Um, and we had a lot of college leaders. So like, there'd be some, I'd I'd come to leader meetings. And so he was kind of like helping a lot of us see that we had ministry leadership potential. Um, But I was like, I don't know if I want to be a, I remember thinking this when I was in high school, I was like, I don't know if I want to be a youth pastor for my whole life. And I don't really know if I have the stuff to be like a senior pastor. So I, I really liked doing ministry oriented things like leading Bible studies and things like that and reading my own Bible at that point. But I, wasn't sure that I was meant to be a pastor and I didn't have a category for anything other than being a pastor when it come, came to doing ministry like I knew of missionaries and such, but like, for instance, now I work for a Christian publisher I've worked for two great Christian publishers in my career, working in Christian publishing and helping Christians publish books to resource the church never entered my mind as like a possibility of how I could be doing ministry yeah so I had a, I had a very narrow understanding and so I went to school just like you know with a motivation of I'll I want to like be a great high school English teacher and maybe football coach that points people to Jesus in whatever ways I'm allowed to in my context you know I had a very ministry oriented focus of being a high school teacher um But I was just like, I don't think I want to, I don't know if I'm supposed to be a pastor. And because I didn't know I was supposed to be a pastor, I was like, I don't feel called, feel called to be a pastor, which in my young faith and out of Christian college campus, the not having the feeling of being called felt like, well, maybe I'm not called then, you know? Um, And And so I was just like, go ahead.
0: Well, it also sounds like you didn't know that there were other
1: options. That's right. Right? There's other stuff
0: that you can do that isn't local church pastoral ministry exactly or going overseas somewhere right
1: right and so and i had some of the same cynicism that you did about like parachurch ministry it's just because i saw some stuff during high school i was like that looks that doesn't like not look legit or whatever and so i had some cynicism i had some like just lack of vision of what it even meant to be called to ministry and so but i was like by, by my freshman year at like on my in during my freshman year at taylor i was like helping out at the church i was at I was leading a small group on campus. I, you know, I was doing a handful of things that enough I was doing enough and friends saw enough in me that they just kind of came and said, literally, mm-hmm. Hey, we think the Lord's calling you to ministry. And you're just afraid because you don't know what that looks like because at Taylor and really anywhere, if you're getting an English education degree, you're going to be a high school English teacher. Um, You're not going to make tons of money or anything like that. But like you, you have one track really, I mean, outside of anybody can do anything, but like it's, you're not going to teach elementary school because you're not getting certified for elementary school. You're getting certified for high school and English. And so you, maybe you'll be a librarian or something, but like I had a very, again, my type A sort of mentality. I had a very clear track of where I was headed and I really liked that. And they just said, We think you're afraid that if you change to like a Bible major and start pursuing ministry or whatever that entails, you're afraid that you don't know what that will look like. And I said, That's exactly right. I'm not afraid of doing ministry. I'm afraid of the uncertainty of what going down that path will mean. And so um, I really, I changed my major Mm. to Bible at the end of my freshman year, not because you need a Bible undergrad, but it was more of like a step of faith for me more than anything. Like I'm going to trust that this is where the Lord has me and we'll just see what happens. And so the Lord really grew me through that throughout college, man. I I was kind of a jerk throughout school and people who were friends with me at at Taylor (laughs) would attest to that. Uh, I mean, look, I was I was a new Christian and a and a Bible student. So yeah, yeah. well, like, there's
0: there's certain things that happen. I think that's worth discussing because yeah, I was yeah. also one of those. Except I was at Trinity and probably like twenty years, no, ten or fifteen years before you. So, um, but so yeah, I was a undergrad in Bible, and so I get it. You you're learning a lot of stuff, right? You're learning about books of the, you're learning all, you're also unlearning all the things that you're you were taught, you know, from Sunday school and. Yes. group and all these things that were, like actually not true, right? Right. So there, there's a certain level of, of hey, I'm actually learning something here, and why haven't I heard this before? Is that what you have experienced?
1: Totally. Yeah. And and I was a cage. I was in my cage stage Calvinism phase. I was. <laughs> okay. I was. Wait, 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 wait. Cage stage. Cal- what is that? <laughs> like what have you never heard this?
0: I've never heard that term. Here's my, oh. my, my contention about Calvinism, because I also tried to be a Calvinist for a while. It didn't, it wasn't predestined, but the yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I I think Calvinism is a personality. That's my that's my uh
1: it's <laughs> sure, not it's not a theology.
0: Sure. Anyway, what's what is cage stage Calvinism?
1: So, so 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 I am still a Calvinist, don't hate me, but uh, I <laughs> um but I like I was. I had just discovered the theology at that time. Like again, I was kind of new to a lot of this stuff, and I was right in. I was in theology classes. I was reading, even though I had grown up in the church, I'd never been taught theology, right? So, like, um, like we were, we were, we were doing Bible study when I was in church, but I wasn't. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't have a systematic theology course or things like that. So I'm just learning a lot of these constructs. I'm learning a lot of these organizations of theology which are like I love systematic theology classes because it's how my brain works. I've always just been I've been always been better at theology than I have been at like rote facts, I guess you could say. Um and like I could rattle off theological ideas quicker than I could rattle off genealogies or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I just always been more wired that way. And so anyway, cage stage Calvinism was like, I was a Calvinist and I was mad about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, I was like, you know, I was hammering tulip everywhere I went. I was like, you know, like it was this new concept to me that I could like hang my hat on. And I was just a jerk about it. Um, and so, so all of that. So I was in a, uh, some people would say no Calvinist ever outgrows the cage stage. And I understand. Um, but like, <laughs> so anyway so I was just a jerk and, and I was like cynical about certain kinds of ministry and at, and at taylor by the grace of God I think this is good I wouldn't have said it was good at the time there's a wide variety of theological backgrounds denominational backgrounds and it's it's a really rich diverse theological institution within the bounds of evangelicalism as you know generally speaking yeah, and yeah. so it it was hard for me because i was i was getting pretty set in a particular like area of theology. And, and like, I was gaining my footing, if you will, and trying to figure out my own sort of theological identity while also grappling with a rich diversity of other views. And so it was, it was like, it was an over dinner, over conversations with roommates or floor mates, so many theological debates and conversations that were often had in good faith, but it was a, it was a, it was a cauldron, a a crucible of theological, discussion. And so, you know, I, I, you can, you can be a jerk in conversations like that. And I was just immature, you know?
0: Right. So you got a bunch of immature people having really deep and profound conversations. How do you look at that time
1: now? I think it was before the most important years of my life and incredibly valuable. Um, I think like people say, and I'm going to get this wrong, probably, um, that you can be social, have good grades, or sleep. You get two of those three. You don't get to have all three. And I definitely had good grades and slept. I did not do all of the social fun functions that a Christian college or a college provides. Like I was not at all of the things and all of that. But after freshman year, beginning of sophomore year, I started dating the girl that broke my heart junior year and that I chased to that school. And so I had my I had my relationship with Susie, who's now my wife. That's who the girl is. And um And I had like a few friends that I was friends with on the floor that I lived on, but I wasn't going out to do all the social events I was not hobnobbing with everybody. And so it was a really important time for me to grow as a person, I learned how to love my girlfriend and and wife and how to be in a relationship like that. I, I was discipled and mentored by mm. a couple of professors on campus, one in the communications department, who was incredibly important to me, and one in the Bible department, who basically became like an older brother, pseudo uncle figure to me. And I so, yeah, so that. it was, it, yeah, it was just a great, super great experience. And though some of my, some of my former uh, peers may remember me a certain way because of my like bullishness I I look back and and love that time and think it was incredibly valuable.
0: Yeah, okay. So the reason I asked that question is because uh I think it's really important like when you start to study theology, you made a great statement there like I've been in the church my whole life but I'd never been taught theology like oh, it makes me a little bit crazy that we need to do a better job of that, but I know that most local church pastors pastors either don't have time or don't have that that expertise, but there's a whole that's a whole other podcast. Um but I think, cause I, I had this, a very similar experience where it was so valuable. Like we had, we had this little, um, I, I worked at a company where everybody that I worked with were also seminaries. They were seminary students and I was college in college. So I was significantly younger than all of them, uh, but also maybe more brash. And so we would have all these conversations and be able to discuss and they would write long things or share their papers. And it was astounding. I look back at it now and I go, Wow, that was really really formative for me to be able to have those conversations. And yeah, did I read a lot about you know, I read a lot of Clark Pinnick and I read a lot of RC Sproul and I threw both books across the room and whatever. But <laughs> that but that was like that those things were helpful for me to ha- have somebody to bounce those things off those people off of and those are really formative. So, friends, I know theological debate can get a little bit heated sometimes but don't shy away from them because they can really help, especially I think when you're in those early, those early years. Okay. So you get the Bible degree, get married, that which is, which is awesome. That's great. You chase the girl. It worked out. Good, good job. Congratulations. And uh, you, and then you leave, you leave college, but didn't you say you went to seminary too? So where'd you end up?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, we, we graduated in May of 13, uh, from Taylor and, um, got married two weeks later to Susie, who we had been friends since eighth grade and best friends throughout high school. And, um, and all of that, I I shared a little bit of that. And so we got married right after that. And then we, so I was actually planning to go to Trinity for seminary. I was a finalist for their full ride scholarship. And I was told by people who had received the full ride that I was a shoe and that I was definitely going to get it. And so we started looking at apartments in the Deerfield area and, probably not really Deerfield, but surrounding areas because that's expensive. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and so uh, we, we looked at a few apartments like around the spring before we got married. And we're planning on moving up to Chicagoland and working in the area until school started in the fall. But I found out the week before we got married, the week after graduation, that I did not get the full ride to Trinity. And I was like, well, I can't pay for Trinity. Like we had some debt from Taylor and Uh, And so we weren't I wasn't going to go into debt for my seminary degree because I was going to be a pastor, which, depending on your view of that, I wasn't going to take on tons of debt at a really incredibly expensive uh, theological institution and not be able to pay it off for maybe the rest of my life. So (laughs) I was like, well, let's figure out what to do. Uh, And we had friends who ran a Christian summer camp back to our cynical discussion. We have friends who ran a Christian (laughs) summer camp in Southwest Michigan that we had uh, my wife worked at throughout college. And I had helped with a bit um, kind of on a volunteer basis throughout college. And uh, we asked them, we said, Hey, we need a place to live for the summer uh, while we figure out where we're going to be in the fall. When I, where I figure out when I'm going to go to seminary, or where I'm going to go to seminary. And they said, yeah, sure. We have a camper. You can live in the camper all summer and just help out wherever we need you to help out. We'll give you the place to live in the camper and we'll feed you, and whenever you need to leave, come August, you can leave. And I said, we said, great, sounds good. So we shipped up to just outside Kalamazoo, Michigan, for the summer. After we get like we got back from a honeymoon, uh, and drove up to Kalamazoo, Michigan, and lived in a camper. We took none of our wedding presents, barely any <laughs> of our possessions, and lived in a uh, lived in a camper on a Christian summer camp for three months, and it was actually a blast. I was gonna say uh, that
0: sounds like a great was, way to start a marriage. I like it.
1: It was honestly, it was super fun. Like a lot of our college friends were still working there that summer, either because they graduated and weren't sure where they were going to work yet, or because they were still in college. And so we got to just hang out with friends all summer long. And I worked a zip line. My wife babysat some of the kids uh, of of camp staff, and it was a blast. It was really fun, but. The whole time, it was kind of tense, because we were trying to figure out where we're going to live come August, what are we going to do. And I had already been accepted to Southern Seminary, I applied to Trinity and Southern because they're both like close to home and highly regarded. And so um, it was like, well, it's probably Southern because I've already been accepted. So let's look for jobs in Louisville, we could not find jobs in Louisville, we had no connections in Louisville. Um, we just could not we were trying to look for jobs from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and we could not easily go down. And so we had a couple possible opportunities for jobs in Louisville, but we just were striking out. And then uh, Stetzer tweeted out he needed a social media guy. I already told this part of the story. So eventually uh, I, apply, I actually applied to that job without telling my wife because I thought it was so much of a long shot. And oh, wow. they emailed they emailed me back immediately and said, we would like to talk to you. And I was like, oh, no, I need to tell my wife I just applied <laughs> for this job in a, in a city, Nashville, that we've never been to in our lives. Uh, and so... Anyway, it worked out. She forgave me, but I, you know, I was one month into marriage. So, you know, <laughs> we learn we learn things. Um, we do so anyway. Uh, so we moved down to Nashville labor day of 13 at the end of August or like end of summer. And I was like, well, Southern has an extension campus in Nashville. So I, while I'm working at Lifeway, I could do seminary through Southern's extension campus. Uh, but then I got hooked up with a few friends at Lifeway who went to a church just outside Nashville Um. Who The church was pastored by John Aiken, who's the son of Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Seminary in in Wake Forest. And John has his PhD, and there are a couple other guys at the church who were qualified to teach. So they had kind of set up the church as an extension campus for Southeastern. Given that I already had a Bible undergrad, I was like, well, I can do like history classes, language classes, et cetera, online pretty easily. And then like the practical ministry classes, like, you know, uh, preaching or um, how to, you know, how to conduct funerals or baptisms, you know, stuff that is more of like your ministry application or pastoral classes, not your brainy history language classes, that kind of stuff was actually taught uh, at the church uh, by a couple of guys who had PhDs and, and like Dr. Aiken would come teach preaching classes and stuff like that. So I ended up getting my master's through Southeastern because I was going to a church that already ha- was, was having a program for them. So, um, so that's how I ended up getting my MDiv from started in January of 14 and finished in May of 17. So in nice. three and a half years, yeah, I took, I just wanted to be done with it really quick. So I took classes, I took classes during the summer and mm. full load in fall and spring. And just really, I would not have been able to do it, Probably online at all, but especially as quickly as I did. If I had like an accounting degree, <laughs> um, having having a Bible degree already made yeah. it rel- relatively easy. So
0: yeah, you're kind of used to some of that stuff already, right? Just uh, yeah, you know, exegesis and right. Probably to Greek and all that kind of stuff. So that's that that's is right. very very good. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah. So so that's all. Like I, I'm fascinated by the sort of progression and you know, if we can just pull on some threads a little bit, like it sounds like you feel like God was leading you through all of that as you were kind of getting more and more comfortable with, I think God's calling me not to pursue a life of self-service, but a life of service to others. Where That he kind of just led you down these little, these stones in the creek, if you will, right? Like just one step at a time. Where did you, were there other, did you ever have any other like experiences with God where he maybe led you or showed you something or anything else like that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think there was a big turning point around 2015, early 2016. So uh, like November 2015, my wife and I are coming back from Thanksgiving in Fort Wayne, coming back to Nashville. Uh, We knew that Stetzer was about to leave soon uh, to go to Wheaton, which he that's where he is right now. And um, it was kind of like, all right, well, I want to maybe go into pastoral ministry. Like that was still the goal, even though I was working at Lifeway. It was like, well, I'm getting my MDiv to eventually probably be a pastor. Don't know what kind, don't know what context. Um, but uh, when I started at Lifeway, I told Ed, I was like, hey, I'm getting my MD- I'm working for you to fund my life while I get an MDiv. And then I'm out. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. I just asked for you to stick around for three years or so. And I said, that's cool. Um, so we were getting close to that three years being up. We knew Ed was going to be leaving soon. So we knew we were approaching a sort of transition. Um, And I had interviewed with a church back home and was just trying to figure out, like, what's the next step here? I'm a planner, again, type A kind of stuff. Like, I'm a planner, always thinking years out, for good and for ill, always thinking years out. And so we were coming home from from Fort Wayne to Nashville on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And I, I actually asked my wife if she would take over driving because um, I needed to study for Hebrew. I, I excelled in Greek in undergrad. Like I loved Greek. I was, <laughs> I destroyed Greek. Um, it was one of my favorite classes, but we actually didn't take any You could do Greek or Hebrew. You didn't have to do both. So anyway, I was struggling in Hebrew in seminary. And, um, and so I was like, Hey, I got to study for this Hebrew test. Will you take over driving? And she said, yeah. So we were just South of Louisville in Kentucky driving South on 65. It was pouring down rain. Long story short, she hydroplanes, we hit the retaining wall in the middle of I-65, oh, going wow. south, flip on the roof of our car, and um, in the middle of traffic, miraculously hit no one else and got hit by no one else. And were able to crawl out of the, the car uh, window that had shattered. And so after that moment, I mean, obviously, like you have... Neither of us were seriously injured. I mean, we went to the hospital in an ambulance, and they were like, "We're kind of amazed that you're like fine, like no concussions, no nothing." And we walk out of that moment that like felt like a near death experience, even though it wasn't like you know, we neither one of us were really injured beyond glass shatter, scratches, and all of that. And it was just like both my wife and I felt a certain closeness to the Lord in that time that we've like in that season afterward, and really just started walking through that period like with a sort of reverence and gratefulness that we were that we were around. Um, and, and really got through that uh, with, with hardly, but a scratch. And so I started having conversations with friends at Lifeway, like, Hey, um, should, you know, should I stick around here? Like friends who, who could be unbiased and weren't going to look to keep me around just to keep me around. Like right. talking with some, with some mentors that I had, that I had made and, and friends who, had started discipling me just as like a, an employee and, and as doing ministry in real life in like the work world it was like, Hey, do you think, do you think I should stick around here? Do you, do you think I'd be good in ministry? Like, what are you looking for guidance? And so it was early 2016, one of my friends and mentors, Trevin wax um, said, Hey, I really think he was like, I think you'd be a fine pastor. But he said, I've seen what you've done with some of our internal vice presidents here regarding social media and, and blogging and creating content on the internet. And he said, I think it would be really cool if you could help our authors with that. Uh, he was like, you know, we've we've got authors who sell tens of thousands of books or Bible studies, but they're just not very good at social media. They're just not very good at, you know, like they could serve their audiences better online. And I said, Man, that sounds really cool. Like, um, I'd love to like, if you think there's some a viability for creating a job like that, and I'd get to work for Trevin, who was like a mentor and friend of mine. And I said, if you think there's viability for that kind of role, like I'd be interested in sticking around once Ed leaves to do that kind of work. And so Trevin talked to the powers that be and the people who get to make those decisions. And they decided, yeah, that sounds like a really cool idea. So in uh, late 16, I, th- I think, um, Susie and I talked and we were like, all right, well, maybe sticking around at Lifeway and, and we loved our church community. Like maybe we stick around for a bit and, and figure out what the Lord has here. So we, we bought a house. We, um, we, I got that new job at Lifeway. I started coaching 15 to 20 authors on how to do social media, how to do like really how to stu- honestly, the way I saw it was not just like a marketing ploy. It was like, you're really gifted and you're, you're really great speaker, Bible study, author, thinker, I want you to steward your gifts effectively on the internet. And I think you're not, wow. I had frank conversations with authors like this. I said, I think that you are not stewarding your gifts well in this space. And you could be doing a better job. I kind of said, like, I think you have a responsibility to serve your audience in this way. And in as much as you're able, and I have the gift set to help you know how to do that. So it was really, really fun. It, very much the, my favorite job I've I ever worked at Lifeway. And one of my favorite jobs I've ever worked period was taking these incredibly gifted thinkers and Bible teachers and authors and helping them decode the mysteries of Facebook and blogging and Twitter and all of that. And that was really like, I we my wife and I both sought the Lord seriously in that time. It was just like, Lord, I feel like I'm just ever since that whole thing that happened senior year of high school and trying to figure and, and freshman year of college, like trying to figure out where the Lord wanted me. Throughout this whole that whole season of 2016 of trying to figure out do I go to ministry do I go to a church now or do I stick around here at Lifeway because I wanted to stay faithful to what I thought was my call to ministry and I was like is staying at Lifeway faithful to my call to ministry like does that count right again me with my whole sort of like yeah yeah type A legalistic mindset I was like does this count like I want to make sure that I'm not just doing what's comfortable and really what it came down to was as I, I remember asking the Lord Lord am I want to use the gifts you've given me in the most effective way I can for the good of others and for your kingdom. That was my like criteria. That was my rubric. And I didn't want to settle for something that was comfortable just because it was comfortable that didn't have me operating in the best of my ability as far as my gifts were concerned. And so in seeking the counsel of others and asking the Lord in that time, I really feel like that position that he moved me into and in, in coaching authors, I was like, this feels like a perfect intersection of my gift set for the good of others and for the good of the kingdom. And so that's, that's one of the times after kind of where we're at in the timeline mm. where I really started to sense the Lord giving direction in a pretty clear way. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's good. And you know what I love about that is it's not, you know, we we like to think of God directing with a, you know, a burning bush or a bright light in the sky, but he doesn't do that. Sometimes he uses the people, right? And the opportunities that we get. And so that's a really good reminder. Pay attention, friends. Be sure to ask that question. I love that you at least ask the question, right? Sometimes you got to just ask yeah. as well. So, yeah, really powerful. Okay. Well, that's all great. So this is how you get get into social. I love that. And I, I found authors can be a little bit resistant to social media too. Like they're like, "But
1: I just want to write, right?"
0: We yep, ran into yep. that a little bit, um, which is okay. Um, I'm so, that
1: way myself, and here we are.
0: <laughs> here we are. Here we are. But so we're, we're talking. So how did you come to writing uh, the book, the Terms of Service, and what do you what are you saying with that?
1: Yeah um so I've like I've blogged for a long time I've always I started blogging when I was in eighth grade and the eighth grade blog still exists uh and I don't tell anybody where to find it because it's quite frankly embarrassing but also kind of like hey an eighth grader was doing this that's kind of cool um so I've always loved writing I loved English classes in high school um that that Greek class my my fourth semester Greek class when I was a junior in college I wrote the longest final thesis that anybody's ever written clocking in at 66 single spaced pages and so like i've always uh i've always loved writing um and so when i got to lifeway trevin had started mentoring me pretty early uh which that's a funny story like i'd read his blog all through college and he had really kind of discipled like really formed my thinking from afar uh, when I was a college student and I didn't even know he worked at Lifeway. And so I saw him in the lunchroom one time. I was like, Hey, you're Trevin Wax. What are you doing here? He's like, I'm working. I work here. Who are you? And I'm like, Oh. <laughs> uh, so he started mentoring me and, and in writing and thinking and just helping me be a better thinker and writer. And um, he encouraged me back in like 2017, 2016, that he was like, I really think people could use a blog about how to reach millennials that's written by a millennial because this is when the whole millennial thing was a big deal. Yeah, yeah, And so I was, I was like, Oh, I don't know if I really want to be that guy, but I was working for Lifeway Lifeway was conducting a lot of research on millennials at the time. And so I was like, okay, again, it was like, I feel like this is a way that I can steward the gifts God's given me to speak into how to reach this young emerging generation as someone who is a part of that generation, Cause there had been a lot of older people writing about that, but not a lot of people who were actually of that age group. And so I was like, I'll do it for a few years. Let's see what happens. I did do it for a few years. It was an incredibly successful blog, millennialevangelical.com. And, uh, it did very well. Um, honestly, it was the most in terms of like page views. It's the most successful blog I've ever personally run. And, um, I, I ended up writing a semi self-published book, um, on that topic in like 2017. And then like, I was done with that. And I went into a season of like two or three years where I barely wrote. I had writer's block. Every time I sat down to try to write something on the internet, I was like, nobody cares what I think. Why would I even write anything? Um, like, who am I to to write something that people should read? It was a lot of self-doubt. It was a lot of lack of confidence, a lot of lack of direction. Like, what am I even going to write about now that I'm not doing the millennial thing anymore? Like, who am I? Um, and then I read in, uh, gosh, 2018 maybe early 2019, I read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death for the first time. And uh, I'd read Postman before I read Technopoly in college and generally knew of him, but had never read Amusing Ourselves to Death. I read that book in 2018-ish and it blew my mind. It mainly blew my mind because it was written in 1985 and it could not be more relevant to today. Yeah. Um, Postman is primarily expounding on the television and, and its effects on culture and society, but so much of it applies to what we're dealing with in social media today. I read that book and I said, what if, I said, it doesn't feel like there's anybody really being Neil Postman today, especially in the Christian space. So I thought to myself, I said, what if there was somebody, I was like, because I, I love reading Postman so much. It was first day is there anybody who's like a Christian Neil Postman for the 21st century? And I kind of poked around and, and there wasn't really, at least that I could find um, someone who had like a Christian perspective on our relationship with social media. There are some books, some like individual books out there. I think of Tony Reinke's uh, competing spectacles um, or, or other similar like Andy Crouch's tech wise family, but, Andy's book is about tech generally. Tony's writing is also about technology more generally and screens, even specifically, but no one specifically about the medium of the social internet. And so I said, Well, gosh, I would really benefit from reading someone like that. What if I just tried to be, what if I tried to do my best 21st century Christian Neil Postman impression? Um, I guess you could say. And I was already reading a lot about social media and was working in it on a day to day basis. And so what I found was my interest in social media content strategy, which had been well-established for a number of years, was transitioning not necessarily away from that, because even to today, I'm still interested in that, but more, I was becoming more and more interested in the sort of theological and, and philosophical underpinnings of what is social media doing to us? How is it changing how we think? How is it changing how we communicate with one another? how is it changing our definitions of truth or our understandings of beauty? And I started to ask all kinds of questions like this. And then I would ask those questions and research and write about the answers. So I started a terms of service newsletter. And around that same time, a friend of mine, her name is Trillian Newbell came to me with the idea of writing a book on social media. She said, I think you have a book in you on social media. And I said, I think you might be right. And i had actually written an outline. It's funny. I say this in the, in the acknowledgements to the book, I had actually written an outline to a social media book in a, in a notebook while taking notes during a sermon at our church, I was taking notes <laughs> of the pastor preaching and, and my, our pastor is so, he, he gets my mind going so much that I'll, while, while I'm taking notes on his preaching, I'll often like be like, Oh man, that gives me a really good thought about this. Or that gives me a really good thought about something else. And so I remember one time while he was preaching, I just sketched out a very simple like three parts, nine chapters. Here's what a social media book could look like. And that was like two years before my friend Trillia brought up to me the idea of doing it. So I had to like dig out that notebook and be like, oh, is this any good? Could I make this into a real thing? And so uh, in in June, I think of 2020 or or May of 2020, I pitched the book uh, first to B&H because I was an employee at Lifeway and, and they have a policy where employees have to pitch books to the employer first. And so I pitched it to them and I didn't think they'd be interested because I'm a nobody and, and uh, a lot of people don't publish nobodies, but they said, yeah, we really think this idea is good. We think it's a necessary topic for, for the church and we'd like to publish it. So that's kind of how it came to be and, and why right. I'm, I'm just interested in in how our relationship with the social internet is changing us in ways we don't realize. So,
0: which is a really fascinating topic. So like um, you know, so one, one of the things that I do is I have, I run a group called Christian Podcasters Association. So we're like, we're all, we're all podcasters, right? Like we're all, so we're all on social media all the time. I it's Facebook, right? It's a Facebook group. So like, I'm, I'm sort of, I have to stay there, right? Even if I want to, if I want to. So, but it's tough to kind of break away sometimes. So what, like, what, what would you say that, social media is doing to us and what would you say might be a healthy way to uh have a boundary
1: yeah the kind of primary message in the book i guess if i could like summarize the thesis of the book is that man created social media to serve man but man has come to serve social media and um Social media platforms are not neutral tools that could be equally good for you, equally used for good or for evil. I think they're prone, they're bent toward brokenness and sin, and we have to intentionally try to use them for good, redemptive purposes. And I think my concern, really the reason I wanted to write the book, is I think we have too uncritically embraced social media's role in our lives, and that's part of the, like I proposed the title Terms of Service for the book for the book as a joke. Uh, I did not think they'd actually take it, and the whole point was like, well, there are a couple that has a dual meaning. A, uh, we never read the terms of service for these platforms that we sign up for. So wouldn't it be funny if there was a book called the Terms of, like called Terms of Service, and maybe somebody would actually read the terms of service for once, or maybe they wouldn't. I don't know. <laughs> um, but also, I think there's a sort of like hidden terms of service to social media platforms that we're agreeing to that are never written anywhere. Not that we would read them anyway, but like there's nothing in the terms of service about how Instagram will reshape our understandings of beauty or how Facebook will lead us to misunderstand what reality is and what it isn't, or there's nothing in terms of service about how social media platforms are prone to draw us into polar tribes that, that war with one another. Um, and so I think there's a sort of hidden terms of service that we agree to anytime we engage with these platforms at scale, that a lot of us like, we just give Facebook our location because it asks for it. We just say yes to everything because why not. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of good to social media throughout the book and my ministry in in talking about these topics. I almost never advise anyone to just delete their accounts because it doesn't solve the problem. Now for people who are addicted to social media or like have an actual like clinical problem, I think that deleting accounts can be helpful. But I think if you have this idea that like, Oh, I'll just log off or delete Facebook or boycott Facebook, that it's going to go away. That's foolish. Um, And so I think what I'm interested in is not a sort of mass exodus from these platforms, but what I'm, what I'm most interested in is a critical relationship with these platforms, an intentional relationship with these platforms where we ask ourselves, do I need to have notifications on or do I not? Rather than just saying yes. Like we just have this perpetual tapping of yes on everything. Like we'll say yes to giving Instagram our location so that it can accurately determine the temperature when we want to put that on our Instagram story for our location. But like, do we really need to give Instagram our location? Like, is it worth it? Like we're trading our privacy for personal expression. Is that a worthy trade? Yeah. So, um,
0: the question I hear you asking is how, like, what's, what are we trading off, right? And it, that may or may not be good. So, this is one of the things that I'm really fascinated by because I was so disappointed with the churches, but overall, my, my, the ones that I experienced, um, and I knew a lot of pastors, spent a lot of time in school, right? Um so my Facebook on Sunday was full of churches streaming their service right during COVID. And um then I've interviewed a number of other people uh like uh Jay Kim and Felicia Song who are like really hesitant about they're like well we need embodiment and I love them like don't get me wrong you guys should go listen to those episodes but
1: the they're both they're both great I just read Felicia's book Felicia's yeah. new book is wonderful
0: so good but what bothers me is a is is like i'm afraid that the church that the american evangelical church is going to go or at least a segment of it is going to go i'm just not going to participate and like you're saying right and then and then thereby number one make those places more evil and number two simply miss out on being able to communicate with entire generations and that terrifies me even even more i think we should ask the question how does it shape us which is the question i think you're asking but let and let's do it critically but let's also not abandon it
1: that's right i don't think um again i i don't, I don't like people i don't like making people's social media decisions for them so like if some people want to totally opt out like i don't think that's wrong um because people have to take into consideration their own proclivities, their own temptations to sin, all of those things. Um, But I I think to unabashedly say it's just all bad is, is wrong is categorically wrong. Um, And, and the, the thing that I've always had to say, especially as I've talked to folks about this book and a lot of like, I rarely write about either in my weekly newsletter or in this book about the good of social media. That doesn't mean I don't think social media is all bad. I just think we're pretty well acquainted with how it's good. Like nobody has to be convinced that it's helpful in some ways, right? Like nobody needs to be told, Hey, it's helpful to connect with friends or family who live far away, or it's fun to, you know, share our Wordle scores with each other or whatever else, like (laughs) (laughs) whatever. Yeah. 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 That's a controversial topic. Um, But like nobody has to be convinced that social media is entertaining and helpful in some ways. But I think, A lot of people need to be convinced of the negative side effects. What's interesting, though, is through COVID, I think one of the maybe few good things to come of COVID is I think that so many of us have had to rely on these platforms so much for social interaction, for sense of community, for church. Is that a lot? Like, I used to have to knock down the door to get people to talk about the negative sides of social media. Now everybody's happy to talk about, like, <laughs> right. like, it's a lot easier in 2022 than it was in 2019 or early 2020 to talk about the bad size of social media. Like the, the window is open. Everybody is happy. Like people are starting to recognize these things may be hurting me in ways that I didn't realize they were. And I think our over-reliance on them during COVID has revealed the cracks of, The foundation of these platforms but i don't think they're all bad and i don't think in total abandonment is the right answer but one of my biggest concerns beyond the ones i already shared from like a big picture perspective is that it it is uh talked about very eloquently by bo burnham the comedian actor director um he talks about it in his new netflix special inside which came out in 2021 right I think it did. Yeah, uh, and and uh, even in some interviews around his movie Eighth Grade, which came out a few years ago, which tries to embody the eighth grade experience in a movie, highly recommend. I mean, it's it's rated R, so know that, but it, it does <laughs> a very good job of capturing what it's like to be an eighth grader these days, and and it is rated R. So isn't that first of all pause? Yes. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny that an eighth grader would not be allowed to go to the movie theater and see a movie that depicts the eighth grade experience accurately. It accurately depicts the eighth grade experience, but they're not allowed to go see it. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, so- um, (laughs) It's disturbing. Yeah, right. He is one of the best thinkers on this stuff right now, Bo Burnham is. And he talks about how offline life has become a theatrical production and really, I'm paraphrasing, a- mine for online content. And so another way of putting Mm. it is, whereas the internet used to be derivative of offline life, like you would see news articles or videos of things that were downstream of what happened in the offline, quote unquote, real world. More and more these days, The online life is our primary experience and that which is offline is actually downstream of what happens on the internet. If you need to be convinced of this, just remember how much we talked about the president's Twitter feed for four years, like offline life was demonstrably affected by what happened online. Um, More and more, you can go, you can watch any like news program and they'll inevitably have a heartwarming segment about some dog video that went viral the previous day. Offline life is downstream of online life. That's a problem. So I don't have a problem with pastors streaming their services or whatever, like there are all kinds of ministerial uses of social media that can be good. What I do think is a problem is if we start to prize and prioritize the online experience over the offline experience, which I think is happening in so many areas of life right now that can be damaging, not only for our spiritual lives, but for our emotional lives and and otherwise.
0: Yeah. I'd like to see us think about the internet and its tool and its, uh, you know, various iterations as tools, right? Like as long as we keep it in its proper context, there's a lot of value and and good there. But when it becomes life, that's that's an issue.
1: And I think that one of the biggest pitfalls I've seen in Christian circles is this idea that social media is just a neutral tool that we've used poorly. And there are a few reasons why that's wrong. And let me just share two of them. One, um, it's not a neutral tool because it's created by sinful people. So it's like... there is not no true neutral tool, but like something like a hammer is maybe about as close as you can get. Like a hammer is not designed for murder any more than it's designed for building a house. Like it, it's designed, you know, it, it's not like it's bent toward one or the other, um, but social media, that's maybe the closest thing to a neutral tool that, that I could think of. Social media, however, has an incredible amount of like bias baked into algorithms. Uh, and I don't just mean like anti-Christian bias, which is what a lot of Christians are spooked about, but I mean right. like bias toward in social media at its very foundation, like the mathematical equations that build up the algorithms that drive what we see on our feeds incentivize certain kinds of behavior. Yeah. So it's almost like to use the hammer analogy. It's like if you were to get a, football stadium full of people and give them all a hammer that had the end sharpened and said, the more people you bash over the head with this, the more money we'll give you at the end, like some bizarre squid game hunger game scenario. And it's like the, the platform, the tool is incentivized to be used in a particular way that generally is not good. And, and my Mm. general like rant against Facebook in particular, because I think they're the worst offender of this as a whole, I guess meta as a whole organization at this point is when the kinds of content that cause Facebook to flourish hinder the flourishing of its users. So divisive mm-hmm. content, angry, polarized conversations yes. make Facebook flourish and make a lot more money because it keeps people on the platform for an extended period of time, which allows them to sell more ads, right. et cetera. But that kind of content obviously makes its user users not flourish. And that's a problem.
0: That's true. Okay, so this is goes back to Seth Godin's famous line that said, "Anytime that somebody has a product and it's free, you are the product." Right. So that's one of the problems with social with social media. Um,
1: and I was—I actually talk about this in the book. It's even worse than that. So some people would say, like, when they take Godin's, which is funny, said I didn't even know he came up with that idea. I'm pretty sure um, it was when that. when when you have that, it's like, yeah, if something's free, if the product is free, you're the product. And actually, uh, Soshana Zuboff in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which is a very good book. It's a very long book. So uh, sit down, grab a cup of coffee. Um, She's a Harvard professor that talks about this stuff very eloquently. She's in The Social Dilemma, if you've seen the documentary. Um, She says it's actually worse than that. I think she's the one who I saw this idea from first. She said, you are not the product. Your data is the product. And you and your hopes... And your dreams and your feelings, that all just gets in the way. So we are not the product. We are the the oil well out that's being tapped. Our data, our actions are the product. In a lot of mm. ways, we just get in the way. We're the chaff and like our personality is that which makes us special. Okay. We're actually part of the problem. They they would rather just have our data. And so that that's some people say it's it's worse. Like Godin's right, like in a very simple way, yes, we are the product, but it's kind of even more dehumanizing than that. Our data is the product, not a whole lot of other okay. stuff. That makes well, what, what's mean.
0: great about what you just said is that that highlights the issue, right? Because it's not, it's not just because it, it's dehumanizing. It's not just that it's a, it's a valuable thing, um, but it is that they're actually after something so that they can, can get more out of, out of you, which is, uh, which is interesting. We'll see what happens. Obviously social media is a product of web 2.0 and we'll see what happens with web 3.0. Although depends on your level of cynicism, perhaps the same thing will happen and we'll just have different huge trillion dollar companies, Uh but Uh we'll, we'll see. All I want to know is who they are and I would like to throw a few thousand dollars (laughs) at them. That's all I'm saying. But (laughs) anyway, okay. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, Yeah. Friends it's, it's worth, um, you know, considering carefully, you know that I'm a big believer in considering your spiritual formation, considering where you are on the journey and what you need. And so considering social media is is good. I'll say also, I love Facebook for this reason. I didn't have to go to a 25-year uh, high school reunion to find out how everybody is. I know at least... and the ones that I want to know. Right. I don't need to know all of them, but there's a few of them that I want to keep in touch with and that's great. And it allows me to do that. Um, which I think is, there's some value to that. And I think if we can, if we can use it right, then that's, that's good. Totally. Anyway. Um, Chris, I've kept you a lot longer than I promised you, but thank you for, for sticking around. And, uh, is there anything that you want to leave us with? I should say before you, before I turned over to you, um, what's your website? Is it termsofservice.com?
1: Uh, Termsofservice.social. So, uh, okay. yep. Yep. Uh, www.termsofservice.social. Sometimes if you just type in, it, type it in without the W's, it can be wonky. I don't know why URL thing, but if you go to my Twitter, I'm at Chris Martin 17, you can find, uh, you can connect with me there, find the newsletter, etc.
0: Perfect. So. I will link that in the show notes. Is
1: there anything you want to leave us with? It's really awkward. I've written on this before, in fact, quite recently. That the kind of person who likes to write books is often quite antithetical to the kind of person who likes to promote themselves. <laughs> um, I think it's it's like the person who likes spending early morning hours in the dark of their study does not like the uh, time they have to spend in the spotlight. And so, going on podcasts like this, I really enjoy conversations like this. You've been great. It's very fun. I really don't like asking people to buy my book. However. I would really like to continue writing books because I really in, I really enjoy that time <laughs> in the study. And so I'd like to use just a moment in the spotlight to please ask you if you've enjoyed this conversation at all, consider checking out the book. Um, I I feel like I am standing naked before, th- before a crowd of thousands asking people to check out my book because it makes me feel very awkward and terrible. But uh, that's part of the game. And, and I would really like to just keep writing. And the way I get to do that is by having a few people buy some of these. So if you if you found this conversation valuable, if you found it interesting beyond my personal biography information, maybe even <laughs> this these last 15 minutes, uh, I'd ask you to kindly buy it and maybe if you have a few minutes review it on Amazon regardless of whether you like it or not. Um that would be just super helpful for me and it would help me get to keep keep doing this. So thanks for listening and thanks for hanging out. I hope it's been helpful for you.
0: Yeah, thanks for being here. I appreciate it, Chris.
1: Sure, thanks.